0: Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist and I'm an associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're gonna get on this podcast. Welcome to season two. On this week's bonus episode of Plenary Session, I am giving a lecture. This is a lecture I gave to the fellows here many, 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 many months ago and it has been languishing in our archives, but now we're putting it out. Patreon backers will get access to the slides, which I will try to send you prior to this lecture being dropped. So you'll be able to follow along and people who don't support us on Patreon will not. And thus it'll be very, very difficult for you to understand some of what I'm saying, but I think you'll still be able to understand much of what I'm saying. So consider supporting us on Patreon. And now the bonus episode. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. Okay, so this lecture is entitled Thinking Better About Cancer Medicine. It's a three-part series on cancer clinical trials. What will we cover? Part one, that's this week's lecture. Surrogate endpoints, their rise, their correlation with what matters, their regulatory use, and how much they speed up drug approval. That's part one. Part two, the ways in which clinical trials fail us. They fail us both because of problems of internal validity and external validity. Um, Why randomization? Can't you just run a trial and look at the outcome and say it's better than what came before and therefore we should switch to the new one? Why do you need to bother with randomization? So we're gonna get into that. We're gonna talk about crossover. So uh, what happens in (coughs) clinical trials in oncology is often we have unidirectional crossover. So if you're initially on the placebo arm, you'll be crossed over to the active treatment. Crossover is like very misunderstood. It can be used appropriately, and it must be used, and then it can be used inappropriately and should never be used. So we're going to talk about that, and then drug dosing. Part three, what does the landscape of oncology look like? All the trials, all the drugs, all the approvals, what does it look like very broadly? What have we known about trials over time? We'll talk about the Grand Canyon between clinical trials and the real world, the differences in patient populations, and then I'll take you through a thought experiment. So we'll be, I guess we'll get through this uh, by the end of this month because I'm off a week, and then I'm back for the the last two sessions. Okay, so Emerson talked to you about the difference between a clinical endpoint and a surrogate endpoint. A surrogate endpoint is not a direct measure of something that's intrinsically meaningful to patients, it's it's a stand-in for that. It's supposed to be measured sooner and have some correlation with what really matters. Okay, so response rate, clinical endpoint or surrogate endpoint, good. It's the percent of patients whose tumors shrink more than resist 1.1, <clears throat> or whatever response criteria. Time to progression. Okay, clinical endpoint, endpoint? surrogate endpoint. point? Surrogate. It's the time until your tumors progress, which is either new lesions on the scan get 20% worse. And what happens if you die between now and the time your tumors progress? Does it count as an event? No, it's censored. You're censored for death. Progression-free survival is that composite primary endpoint of TTP plus death. So if you die, it's scored as an event in PFS. DFS is disease-free survival, often used in the adjuvant setting. We've surgically extirpated all of the tumor, and we're waiting until the time until the disease visually comes back on some scan. MMR, major molecular response, that's used in CML. Clinical endpoint surrogate endpoint? Surrogate. Overall survival, that's easy. How about disease specific mortality? So I do a clinical study. We randomize people to transplantation or no transplantation for leukemia and we find there's a reduction, there's a reduction in death from leukemia. Clinical, sounds clinical. What if I told you the reduction in death from leukemia was entirely offset by transplant related mortality and overall mortality curves are superimposable? I think it's a tricky one, yeah. I think it it, it is in fact a direct measure of what matters. So I think it is a clinical endpoint, but it is one that you have to take into context with other endpoints. It's not a a single common, it's not a final common pathway endpoint. It's not a single endpoint you can hang your hat on. And actually it requires adjudication. When somebody dies on the bone marrow transplant unit, did they die of the transplant or did they die of the leukemia? Is it always so easy to tell? No, it's not so easy. Okay, quality of life, of course, is a very important clinical endpoint. Um, A pain questionnaire, surrogate or clinical? Clinical, yeah, okay. Response rate and progression. Okay, we used to use 1980 WHO criteria to judge the response of solid tumors. And this is basically what it means to have a response. If the bidimensional index shrunk by 50%, you would have a partial response. So if you shrink this much or more. And progression is defined as growth from the nadir. So in WHO it was 125% bidimensional. But we use more often Resist. Resist has replaced WHO by the late 1990s. And Resist uses a unidimensional diameter of 70%. So 30% reduction in unidimensional diameter counts as a response. So what happens if your diameter shrinks by 29%? Are you a responder? 31%? Yes. Okay. But you can think about this. Um, you can think about this in terms of, are you likely to feel very different if it's 29% or 31%? No, it's very arbitrary. And why do we use unidimensional 70% and bidimensional 50%? It's because they both roughly correlate with the same volumetric, so you know 4 thirds pi r for the volume of a sphere. Okay, and pr- you can have progression if you enroll on the study and you have steady growth, or you can have progression if you respond initially and then it's 20% from the smallest it ever was. Okay, does that make sense? So that's really roughly what pr- criteria there are. If I take a lot of people who have lung cancer and they've progressed on eight prior lines of therapy and they enroll on a clinical trial, and I tell you there's not a single person who had a response on my clinical trial, but I had 60% of people with stable disease and it lasted 16 months. What are you gonna tell me? You have selected indolem biology. If you have been able to receive eight prior lines of therapy with lung cancer, you have been able to live long enough with lung cancer, not have it rip-roaring and progress and kill you, and be able to enroll on you know probably multiple studies because there's only so many lines of therapy, you have likely very slow-growing tumor. You take people with slow-growing tumor, it will take a while from going from here to here, even in the absence of shrinkage. So of course you'll have stable disease. Okay, so where did these come from? It was a very famous dinner party They say dinner party, but who knows? But Charles Mortel was a very famous oncologist who was at the Mayo Clinic and he did a lot of work. And he got a mattress and he put it on a table and he got marbles and he put it on the table and he unrolled a sheet of foam rubber. 12 solid spheres ranged in size from 1.8 to 14.5 centimeters. The layer of thickness was 0.5 inches to approximate the skin and subcutaneous tissue. Uh, And it's 1.5 inches for the larger masses to approximate the abdominal wall. That's the thickness of the foam rubber. So is the foam rubber used in this 1970s experiment uh, consistent with the foam rubber you would need today uh, in modern America? No, I think it's too little foam rubber. And then he says, all the 16 people that they were asked to bring the tool he employed in clinical practice, because unfortunately it was 100% gender bias set. okay? And they use a caliper and they measure these tumors. Why are they measuring marbles through foam rubber with calipers? Because They didn't have CAT scans. Okay, and then he said, unbeknownst to everyone, two tumors were the same size and two tumors were the same size. Uh, and this was just to see whether or not people will detect this. Okay, so he asked, how often did two different investigators think the same size mass was actually different? Okay, and if, it, if you looked at 25% shrinkage, bi-dimensional shrinkage by calipers, it was about a th- one out of four times that they thought they thought that the same size mass was actually different. It was either responding or progressing, the same size marble. But if you used a 50% percent bidimensional shrinkage, that dropped down to about 6.8%. And that was true whether or not it was two different investigators or the same person fooling themselves, about 20% and 7.8%. So he picked 50% for the only the reason is that it has roughly that P of 0.05, a 5% error rate. Only 5% of the time are you gonna think there's a response when there's in fact no response. So he picked it He picked the cutoff that we have employed today, roughly the same exact cutoff that we've employed today for all of solid tumors, because this is what men in the 1970s could feel through foam rubber with calipers. Not because it had anything to do with how patients feel or function. From these humble beginnings, these cutoffs chosen for operational reasons, it wasn't practical cutoff, have evolved into assessments of efficacy. And people tell me that, oh, this drug is good for this person, it has a high response rate. But it, you know, think about where it comes from. Okay, so of course, WHO is bi-dimensional. We talked about that. And here's the final reminder. Okay, so the FDA, despite, so this is whether or not an individual patient has a partial response. Uh, of course, complete response is the disappearance of all uh, resist 1.1 masses, and the normalization of lymph node size. That's complete response. Uh, partial response, of course, that 30% reduction. So the FDA has defined the overall response rate as the sum of partial responses and complete responses. So if I do a clinical trial of hundred people, colon cancer, 39 of them have a partial response. One has a complete response. What's my response rate, Ellen? hundred people, 39 partial response, one complete response. What's the response rate? 40%. That's right. It's just the sum of the percent of people who have partial or complete response. Now, The response duration or duration of response, that's the time from the initial response until tumor progression among the fraction of patients in whom the tumors respond, okay? That's the duration of response. So what if somebody said, um, you know, we have a drug and um, if you respond, you have a very long PFS, but if you don't respond, it's not that long. What does that tell you about how good that drug is? People do that. It tells you nothing at all. It's like an analysis by response. It doesn't tell you whether or not that drug is better than any of the drug or whether or not it's better than doing nothing. Um, anyway, you know, you can see already if you're measuring this tumor here, I want you to, okay, okay. Now, each of you is going to have to measure one lesion on this scan. Okay, I'm going to point which lesion so we can standardize it. And each of them with their fingers will show you how they will measure the tumor size. This lesion here, you see it? Measure the bi-dimensional bidim- image and put your two fingers on it. Show everyone, the audience, what you think it's the bidimensional. Okay, audience, you see, show the audience again. Let's we'll show them one more time. Okay, okay, go over there. Now, Alan, this lesion, show me, show me what you're gonna measure as your diameter on this lesion. Okay, my point is proven, thank you. <laughs> now, to summarize for our listeners at home, both of these two did, I think, a very fair job in pointing out a diameter of that lesion, but they have both picked, I think, diameters that differ by two and a half, three centimeters. Would you say that's fair? And I think that is part of what we forget about RESIST. Uh, What is a waterfall plot? Um, Oh, okay, one last thing about response. RESIST 1.1 requires you to document, once you show the tumor shrunk 30%, you gotta get another CAT scan within one month or so to confirm the response. They ask for a confirmatory scan if response is the primary endpoint of the study. That's just a quirk of RESIST 1.1. Okay, this is a waterfall plot. A waterfall plot is for every single individual who's a column, What is the absolute best subsequent scan? Okay. What's the absolute best subsequent scan? So this person, what's their absolute best subsequent scan? The leftmost disease progression, 45% tumor growth. Which scan did that growth occur on the first scan, second scan, third scan, fourth scan, fifth scan? Think about it. How do you not know? Uh huh. But which one is this of his scans? The first, it has to be the first because it's only going to grow more from there. It's the first one. Ah, now let's get to about where it gets interesting. These people here, they had some tumor shrinkage but it didn't meet resist cutoff. And these people had resist, that passed resist cutoff. These people, which scan was it? That's you don't know. You don't know whether that's it's the second, the seventh, the 27th, you don't know which scan it was. You just knew that probably the only thing that couldn't have had happened to them was it couldn't have progressed over 120% they would be off the study. But it has to happen, so they couldn't have progressed, but it could have fluctuated and then finally dipped down, and they're just picking the single best scan. So this is a very favorable view of what a tumor does. People show this all the time and talk about these awesome waterfall plots. It's a very, I think, biased and meaningless way to look at the data. Um, also, uh, this, as you can see from these two, they pick very different measurements. This is a lot of measurement error in the center of a waterfall plot. This is a great paper by Tannock and colleagues. This is radiologist one, two, three, four, medical oncologist one, two, three, four. And the color of the person, this is the same person, same person, same person, same person, same person, same red person, same person. And Tannock has asked medical oncologists and radiation oncologists to make a waterfall plot from people's images. And he said, we're gonna color code each image and we'll see the different waterfall plot you produce. So I guess the point I wanna make here is that People generally think yellow bar is shrinking. People generally think red bar is progressing. But you can see the order of the colors is switching around quite a bit. Quite a bit. There's a lot of variation. This person thinks this person has fluorid progression. This person thinks they have stable disease. This is called use and misuse of waterfall plots by Tannock. And this is a paper that Sonny and I did a while back. So, um, and this. Should say investigator, not instigator. But okay. Oh, you're leaving just when you're talking about your paper. <laughs> okay. So here's what she did. She looked through, I think like 200. I wish you were here to explain what she did. She looked through like 200 different waterfall plots in the published literature, and she said, if you look at the waterfall plot and you count. How many columns are responders? Just like I gave you that thirty-nine forty example. You count here, let's say there's 100 bars and there's like 10 below, so it's a 10% response rate. So this looks like a 10% response rate. 10 bars are responder out of 100. So she said, let's count the bars and you get 10%. But then you read the paper and you find the actual response rate in the paper. What's that? And then she went through that for 200 different things and she plots this, the difference. The investigator made waterfall plot is 6.8 percentage points higher than the response rate in the paper. And when you have central review make waterfall plots, it's 11 percentage points higher than the response rate in the paper. So in other words, the waterfall plots visually overestimate response by five to 15%, something like that. So you know, not only is it something to be taken with a grain of salt, it's notorious upward. And that's for two reasons. One, they pick the single best scan. And two, if you die before your first scan, which where's your column? You don't have a column. You're excluded from the denominator. Okay, we talked about time to progression. We talked about progression-free survival. Progression-free survival is a composite primary endpoint, uh, a composite endpoint, often primary. And in cardiology, we have a composite endpoint, and it's like revascularization, death from cardiovascular disease, or all-cause death. It's like a, you know, kind of a classic. The classic is MACE, major adverse cardiovascular events. We have a car- composite endpoint. It's called progression-free survival. It's the time until the tumors grow more than 20% from the smallest they ever were, there's new lesions on the CAT scan, or the patient dies, whichever of those three come first, okay? That's PFS. If you look at all randomized trials conducted over time, phase three studies in oncology, it shows that we are increasingly in love with surrogate endpoints. So this is Chris Booth and colleagues, who hope Chris Booth will probably be listening to this so we can talk about him. Hello, Chris. (laughs) Uh, Chris, Chris Booth and colleagues, Uh, who did this really nice paper, they looked at a set of randomized trials published between 1995 and 2004 and a set published between 2005 and 2009. And Chris, you need to update this because now we're all the way in 2019. Um, So what he found initially was in this early set, the primary endpoint of phase three studies in oncology, 50% were overall survival, 26% was a composite time to event endpoint like PFS, and 14% the primary endpoint was response rate. But between 2005 and 2009, overall survival has declined in popularity. It's now about a third. And response rate has declined kind of modestly in popularity, 14 to 8%. But really, it was the rise of the time-to-event endpoints like PFS. PFS is just dominating as the primary endpoint of clinical studies. He also did this uh, uh, this other part of the study that's really nice, where they looked at the sample size of a study and the proportion of RCTs with industry support over time. And so here's what he finds. The sample size of a study, of the average study, in breast colorectal non-small cell lung cancer was the light bar, it's about 100 in 75 to 84. It's now over 700 plus in 2005 to 2009. And the percent of trials with industry funding went from 0% to like over 80%. Why are the the clinical trials getting so big? Sample size is big. Is big good or bad? Both. Okay, why is it good and why is it bad? Yes. Okay, I guess I, he, pretty good, yeah, he's right. So it's good because it generates, I think, more precision in the estimate. So the, co- the confidence around the point estimate of both arms is quite precise, the confidence intervals tighten. It's bad because now you have trials that are powered to, st- to detect a statistically significant effect that may not be clinically meaningful. And perhaps the worst of that is the Erlotinib study in pancreas cancer, where they're able to detect a 10-day survival advantage by the addition of Erlotinib to gemcitabine in metastatic pancreas cancer. So you may wonder if studies are now overpowered, their power to detect statistically meaningless differences in outcome. And of course, it's gone hand in hand with the industry's involvement in the field, along with a shift in endpoints from endpoints that are intrinsically meaningful to endpoints that have tremendous uncertainty and can also, in in the part three of this lecture, we'll talk about other ways you can game a PFS. Okay, so we did this in 2015, and then Allison uh, Haslam, who works with me, uh, she updated it uh, last year in 2018. But we wanted to know, um, okay, I've explained where response rate comes from and PFS comes from, but what is the relationship between PFS and overall survival? If I have a breast cancer drug that improves PFS, is it likely to improve overall survival or not? What does that relationship look like? And so we looked at this in, in the entire oncology literature. And so how do you actually kind of study this? So let's say we were interested in breast cancer. And we wanted to know if progression-free survival was a reliable surrogate of overall survival. What we would do is we would assemble every randomized trial ever done in breast cancer and we would kind of collect the information. So here's what we find. Trial one, in one control arm of this study, survival PFS was three months in the control arm, six months in the intervention arm and overall survival was 18 months, median survival in 21 months. And let's just assume proportioned hazard and the hazard ratio fits along this line. In the second study, PFS was one month, it went up to two months with the intervention, OS was 12 months and went to 13 months. Okay, just imagine there's two studies. On one axis you plot the change in the progression-free survival, and the other you plot the change in the overall survival. And each trial becomes a dot on the plot. And then you perform linear regression and you look to see how closely do the points cluster on the line. And the the measure of how close the points cluster on the line is the correlation coefficient, the R, or the R squared, which is coefficient of determination. You don't need to bog, I won't get into all that, but these are cutoffs that have been proposed by the German ICWIG group as strong Rs. R of 0.85, you can hang your hat on, and R less than 0.7 is considered unsuitable for regulatory and clinical decision-making. But, because literally, this kind of literally means that half of the variation in survival is not captured by the progression-free survival. So that's truma- and, you, and I'll show you in an example coming up that how much variation there can be. Okay. So this is roughly you do it, how you do it. This is asking, philosophically, the question this is asking is this. In clinical trials where drugs are compared against control arms, do drugs that improve progression-free survival subsequently improve overall survival commensurately? <laughs> or not? Okay, that's the question they asking. Do drugs that improve progression-free survival improve overall survival? It's not asking, is PFS a prognostic marker for overall survival? That's not the question. Surrogate validation must ask the question, in studies where an intervention is made, how much of the variation in what you care about is captured by variation in the surrogate? Okay, so this is Allison's plot when she looked at, updated it for everything ever done. What, let me explain it to you. Every diamond is is an analysis that's been done, a meta-analysis of all the RCTs. The size of the diamond is the number of randomized trials in the study. And this big diamond, it's like 150, maybe 200. And the small diamonds, maybe we're talking about eight randomized studies. You can see already, if the diamonds are small, are they very reliable? For instance, if I only plot three data points, four data points, and fit a line, you know, you often get a line to fit well. You need a lot of data points to really see the association. If you only have two points, you can get a perfect line every time, right? Uh, so this one thing she's showing is you that many of these validation studies are small, and the red means they have a low correlation, unsuitable for regulatory purposes, and the green shows you that they are high correlation events. And I think what her graph just visually shows you is that you know lung cancer, breast cancer, there have been these mega studies, they're unfavorable. The larger the studies, perhaps even generally unfavorable. And now there have been a bunch of green but if you look at it, I see more red than green. I don't know. Yeah, good question. Mm, I guess we didn't color code that, but you're right, that the validation study should ideally be for drugs of a certain class or a similar um, type of drug, a certain tumor type, a certain line of therapy. Uh, you know, All these things are built into the validation study. So we should only be able to comment about cytotoxic drugs in non-small cell lung cancer, and if they improve PFS, do they later improve OS? And then, for instance, you may have a new TKI that violates those principles. Just a classic example would be, you know, in the adjuvant setting of cancer, cytotoxic drugs kill micrometastatic disease. But does erlotinib in in (laughs) EGFR mutation-positive lung cancer kill microscopic disease, or does it merely slow tumor growth? And so the relationship that we saw with cytotoxics might not hold true between DFS and OS. So that's one example. Okay, so this is what it looks like by line. So this is low, medium, and high correlations. Uh, in the metastatic setting, these correlations are the worst. Uh, probably for the simple reason when I asked you two to measure the same tumor, you had very different measurements. You know, um, In the adjuvant setting, the correlation is better. And that might be because relapse might be a little bit more objective than progression. Because a relapse means you can see it from, when, when, from before, you could not see anything. Now you can see it and biopsy it and prove that it's it, right, that it's cancer. So that might be a more um, uh, less measurement error kind of um, intervention. That might be why. But it might also be bi- because the biology of these particular tumors and, and the drugs. The things that are in the high here are three-year DFS in colon cancer, good predictor of overall survival in, med- in adjuvant colon, and lung cancer, a DFS, a good predictor of OS. Breast cancer, it's actually quite poor, which we'll talk about. Oh, When you looked at this kind of study, and I showed you the number of studies, um, this is a side point, but what you really want to include is every randomized trial that's ever been published, presented, or registered in a trial registry, whether or not those results are disseminated or not. Because you don't want to exclude information just because it's not been published. Maybe second best is published in meeting abstracts, third best is published articles. Convenient sample, that's starting to get problematic when you only look at randomized trials that happen to be on your desk. But to be honest, the FDA actually does a lot of validation studies where they only do a convenient sample of the trials that were submitted for regulatory approval. They're not doing all the studies. Um, so what we found is if you look at the landscape, very few people are going after the most rigorous kind of study design looking at the so-called gray literature. Anyway, it's a side note. If you approve a drug based on progression free or, or, or response rate, that's about two thirds of drug approvals. If you follow those drugs on the U.S. market five years later, what happens to those drugs? Well, here we find in this paper by Chulkim Kim and colleagues. Chulkim and, I shouldn't say that. I always say that because I'm right that way, but uh, Chul Kim and I did this paper. Uh, so what we did was we looked at 36 drugs that were approved based on surrogates and we followed them out five years on the market. And we asked how many of these can we find a study that proves they improve overall survival? And if, and we basically found the answer is like between 10 and 20 percent. And a bunch of them, 50 percent, we could find a study that looked at survival but did not find a survival benefit. And for maybe 30 percent we could find a study that we could find no study. It was either ongoing or never reported. So actually very few of these drug approvals have later shown survival benefit. Now it's probably beyond the scope of this talk, but drug approvals come in two different varieties. One is the accelerated drug approval. That's the drug, actually I'm going to talk about this more in a future slide. Um, I'll, I'll save it for then. The difference between accelerated and traditional approval we're going to talk about in the surrogates and how they're used a little bit differently. But here you can see it doesn't matter. If you use a surrogate for approval, accelerated or traditional, very low rate of subsequent OS. And this is Tracy Rupp and colleagues in GMIM. They followed up our study and they asked, in those cases where you don't know survival benefits, what do you know about quality of life? And she finds that many of them, there's no evidence. Some of them, there's no difference or quality of life is a decrement. Some of them, the results are mixed. We can argue about whether or not quality of life is better or worse. And just one of them, quality of life was better. Okay. So she finds that not only do, do they not improve OS, they rarely post-market improve quality of life. Ah. You, Alan Lee, that talk I attended, gave this lecture about PATH-CR, okay, in breast cancer. And you showed this graph from the cortisar paper. I said, look at figure four. This graph basically shows that women who achieve a pathologic complete response, red line, have better survival than women who do not achieve pathologic complete response. So if you're a woman, you want to achieve pathologic complete response if you're in this setting. It is prognostically good. You have a better outcome if you achieve it. Okay, but that is not the question of whether or not it's a suitable surrogate. A suitable surrogate has to say in clinical trials where one drug increased path CR rates, Did the variability in what I cared about, survival, was that captured in the variability in PATH-CR rates? So in other words, do drugs that later improve overall survival actually improve PATH-CR rates? That's the question, okay, in experimental trials. And that they actually did in Figure 4. Here they're plotting a measure of the PATH-CR rate, the odds ratio, and here they're plotting the hazard ratio for event-free survival, and here it's overall survival and PATH-CR. Event-free survival is disease-free survival. It's also a surrogate endpoint. So this is like one surrogate versus another. An early surrogate versus a later surrogate. This is like the more meaningful one. Okay, the size of the circle is the number of patients in the clinical study, and each dot, each circle is a clinical study. So what does this say about interventional trials? In the figure four of the paper, in clinical studies where one arm had higher path CR rate, did that arm later have a high event-free survival, better event-free survival? In clinical studies where one arm had a better path CR rate, did those arms have a better overall survival later? What does a regression mean when it's flat? No correlation. It means no correlation. It means drugs that improve path CR have nothing to do with drugs that later improve overall survival. It is a surrogate that captures essentially none of the information. Actually captures, I think, 3%, 4% of the information. It has very little predictive value. And that might be because that the women on the margin who are flipped, see here it's women who achieve path CR versus women who don't achieve path CR. This is based on how many of those women who would not have achieved path CR am I flipping to path CR? And does the prognosis of those women good enough that it improves the outcome of the whole strategy? That's kind of the philosophical reason why. And you can imagine that maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just kind of masking the PATH-CR. You're just achieving a, a transient PATH-CR, but you haven't uh, interdicted on the biology in a way that you've actually improved the disease course. That's kind of the, sort of the, the biological thinking behind it. Okay, so here's an example. Lapatinib trastuzumab, and the combination in HER2-positive breast cancer. This is the PATH-CR rate. If you get trastuzumab, there's like a 25% PATH-CR rate. If you get lepatinib, it's 29%. But look what happens when you get both. Boom. 51 percent. So, if you can improve PATH-CR rates, this is what your study might conclude. Your two drugs might boost PATH-CR rates, and you'd say statistically significant is highly promising. So what happens if I take these drugs and I randomize thousands of women to adjuvant trastuzumab or trastuzumab plus lapatinib? We've seen it improves PATH-CR. You know PATH-CR is prognostic. Here, you know, I've pointed doubt about whether or not PATH-CR captures surrogate reliability. So, what do you think? Will it be a positive or negative trial? Negative, Negative. and in fact it was. Stone cold negative, <sighs> totally negative. So even though we're like doubling PATH-CR rates from trastuzumab, we have absolutely no difference in DFS. And that's because, although prognostic, it did not ever have good surrogate val- validity. Okay, this is lung cancer, and it basically is showing you an actual surrogate validation study. And the surrogate validation study is showing you that among drugs that there's a difference that improve PFS, 1, 2, 3, 4, what's the difference in OS? And the R squared is 0.19, which is very, very low, which is like an R of like, I don't know, 0.8 something or something like that. 0.99, 0.9 something. Uh, 9 point something. That's an R of, somebody do the math and insert the, okay. Very low. So what does this say? This literally says, that drugs that change progression-free survival, the amount of progression-free survival they change, is not a good predictor of a commensurate benefit in overall survival. That's what it's showing you. It's showing you that time to progression is not a reliable surrogate endpoint in lung cancer because the R-squared is very poor. There's so much variability. Look at this drug. It improves PFS quite a lot. And look at survival. It actually may be perhaps even a decrement. Okay, let's talk about one example that may flesh this out. Neratinib. Neratinib is, to my knowledge, the only FDA-approved drug that was approved in the adjuvant space before it was approved in the metastatic space. So it was approved for women who we cut out the tumor, there's nothing detectable on scan, we give them neratinib, and then we improve disease-free survival. But this happened before we had proven the drug was efficacious in the metastatic setting. It's always the other way around. We always first prove in the metastatic setting. But it's not because they didn't try. Here it says Puma shrugs off an expected failure for its breast cancer drug. They had tried a metastatic PFS trial, but it actually was a null trial. This is the benefit on disease-free survival that led to neratinib's approval. So this is women who yeah, got treated with one to two years of trastuzumab randomized to neratinib or placebo. Neratinib uh, is an oral HER2-directed targeted drug. Uh, this is invasive disease-free survival. So surrogate endpoint or clinical endpoint? It's a surrogate. It's a surrogate endpoint. It's not even overall survival. But look at the magnitude of the surrogate change. Very small. And as they say inology, if you can fit the laser pointer between the curves, you can give the plenary session at the national meeting. It's all it takes. But here, I can't do it. Because one, this screen does not prevent laser prevents laser pointers from being <laughs> shown. But two, I have a shaky hand. Okay. It's not so good. Neratinib, of course, it has toxicity. Grade 3 four diarrhea, 41% versus placebo, 2%. Grade 3 diarrhea is an increase in seven stools per day over baseline. So if you go to the bathroom one time a day, you're going eight times a day. Or diarrhea requiring IV fluids, hospitalization, interferes with ADLs. So this is another side point. I often hear people talk about how, um, um, how uh, cytotoxic drugs have worse side effects than targeted drugs. I think that you should like, take that myth and put it out of your mind. Because cytotoxic drugs are often given every three weeks, and we used to measure toxicity based on this kind of scale. And we would worry about grade three, four to- toxicity because it's really unbearable to have even if you have every three or four weeks. But now when you take a drug daily, even toxicity that has less than eight stools a day, even four stools a day, it can become day in and day out quite unbearable. Lower grades diarrhea can become quite unbearable because you're always taking neratinib. You never get a break. You never, it never gets better, just continuous. Grade one hand foot syndrome, grade two hand foot syndrome, that can be, as you've seen with all your patients at the VA on serafinib or sunitinib, you know. People complain a lot about that because it's unrelenting, it never gets better, it's not cyclical. So the same scoring system of, you know, AEs that was adapted for every three week drugs is being used for everyday drugs. And we say that, oh, it doesn't score as high, but we're forgetting that there's no break. And so I think it's kind of just a misnomer. Many of these targeted drugs I think are more unbearable. I think probably, it's easier to give someone docetaxel than serafinib, oftentimes, uh, from, you know just from getting them through the treatments. And, and if you actually knew the truth about how much they were taking the pill. We talked about that sample size thing. I showed you the sample size of studies have gone up. These are three randomized trials in adjuvant breast cancer that all appeared in the last five years. Okay, one of these studies led to the drug approval of a new drug. One of these studies is a post-marketing commitment for drug that improved PATH-CR, and it is a positive post-marketing commitment, so we got it right, thank God. It's a positive study. Two are positive studies, and one is the reason why we don't do axillary nodal dissection in women with positive sentinel lymph nodes. So one is a negative study. There's no difference between the two arms. Two are positive studies. Which of these trials is the study where there is no difference between the two arms? Which is negative? Which is Z11? Which is the study that says we can omit axillary nodal dissection? B, B is the negative study, right? Looks like it to me. But in fact, B is the confirmatory study of pertuzumab. That is why pertuzumab is on the market. C is the negative study. And A is the, a is the positive study, ratnip. Why is A and B positive and C negative? The only reason A and B are positive and C is negative is the sample size here is a couple thousand and the sample size here is a few, several hundred. So breast oncology, when they want positive results, they just make it a 5,000-person study. When oh, they want negative results, they make it a thousand person study. But the magnitudes of the difference that they're willing to dismiss and they're willing to celebrate with champagne this is a, these, are block, these, are, these are drugs that make billions of dollars. This is billions of dollars, and this is people not doing a surgical procedure that they used to do. Billions of dollars. You know, all it is is just a little, little difference in sample size. Oh, and of course, Naralex is priced at the value based price of 10K per month. That's what we call a deal. Okay, now what happens if you look at the best study that looked at disease free survival and overall survival in adjuvant breast cancer trials? The study by Eric Ixchin. Um, this is what you see. See, this is nice. This is a better way to plot it because you actually get to see the other way too. This is zero. This is zero. So, this is two year DFS difference on the x axis and five year OS difference. Every dot is a randomized control trial. This is the kind, this is a validation study. You got a lot of dots, you got a lot of data, you got si- circles of different sizes. You can actually see what is the correlation between DFS and OS. And there is some there is some relationship, you know. Uh, but what is the R squared? How much of the variability is being captured? What is that correlation coefficient? And the answer is, Naratnib, let's look where Naratnib would fall. It had a 2.3% increase at IDFS at 24 months. It's right here. So the 95% confidence interval of Naratnib for its effect on OS ranges from negative to positive, right? Just looking at all the studies. Neratinib could be, it could be here, or it could be here, we don't know, we're not measured OS yet. But this just shows you that this is a drug that's coming to market that has 40% grade three diarrhea. It costs $10,000 per month. And you're giving it to somebody and saying, you might be better off by taking this medicine. And what is the confidence that they're actually gonna be better off? It's slightly more above zero than it is below zero, but it's all over the place isn't it? I mean, it's just really uncertain. It's like no certainty at all. Okay, and I think the R-squared, where did my slide go? Oh, here it is, 0.62. It's actually weak. It would have failed regulatory decision-making by, those cutoffs are from German ICWIG, which is a very good group in Germany, in a nation that's smart about these things. Okay. I think we should remember, we can't forget, you know, sometimes people ask me, like, well, if a drug has a huge PFS benefit, huge PFS benefit, isn't that a predictor of OS benefit? Like for instance, like when you're way out here, then finally at some point you're above zero, right? You know, the confidence interval's all above zero at some point. I guess what I would say is a couple things. One, you can see there's so few points out here that, you know, if anything, these confidence intervals are kind of play outward because there's more uncertainty at these extremes. Because we really don't know at these very extremes, you know, whether or not the the confidence interval is just as tight. Because we have very little data that shows massive differences in surrogates. But the other thing I want to point out is, well, we don't have a lot of drugs that have these, like, whopping PFS games you postulated. This is 71 consecutive drugs approved for solid cancer. This is the improvement in progression-free survival, the improvement in overall survival. Where it is blank, we don't know the data. So here's, here's less, you know, less than one month, two months, two months, just four months. That's good. Six months, that's great. You know, but here, two months, two months, two months. The median line here is 2.1 months. The average drug that comes to market has a 2.3 month progression-free survival advantage and a 2.1 month overall survival advantage. Okay, so the average drug that's coming to market is very, very marginal. In part three of this lecture series, we're gonna talk about who are they testing this drug in to get this, and what happens when you start giving the drug in your VA clinic? Are you, going to get, are you still gonna get this? Okay, so this is our follow-up paper. This is where I'll explain the difference. Okay, the FDA can give drug approval in two ways. Um, There's, it's more complicated than that, but like there's two fundamental ways. You can get a regular traditional approval, meaning that you have demonstrated your drug has efficacy and it is safe under some circumstances and it can be marketed. And we can revise your drug label and find out that there's new safety signals we didn't know about, but we almost universally will never say, it turns out the drug doesn't work and you have to come off the market. There's no post-marketing commitment to demonstrate efficacy to prove it works. You can also get your drug to market by accelerated approval, meaning that it's a provisional approval. We've, you've shown you can improve a surrogate, so it might work, um, but we don't know that for sure. And here you have a post-marketing commitment to show that once you're on the market that you actually do improve, you have efficacy on the market. That's, the, that's a major difference. But what is a legal language? So you can get a full approval if you have an OS benefit or a quality of life benefit. There's like one of these drugs that has a quality of life benefit. That's a full approval. You can also get a full regulatory, regular approval if you are a surrogate that is quote unquote established, that has a high correlation with survival based on those curves I've shown you. You can get a full approval for an established surrogate. For an accelerated approval, the surrogate only has to be quote reasonably likely to predict. It doesn't have to be established or very strong. Okay, so we wanted to know What does it mean to be established? What does it mean to be reasonably likely to predict? So we made a list of all the drugs approved in I think five years and we sorted them and we looked for the surrogate studies in every single topic. Okay, here's what we found. The bars go from great evidence to lousy to no evidence. That's the scale. So for accelerated approvals, how many of them have a strong correlation with survival? Zero. How many have a medium? Zero. How many have a weak? Four. And how many have something called like a prognostic study, like you were talking about in your lecture? Uh, Seven. And how many have no studies ever done on that topic? Fourteen. Okay, now let's go to the the established drugs. By law, they have to all have strong correlations. They have to all be this orange bar. How many have this orange bar? Not that many. It's supposed to be 100%. This is strong correlation, level one correlation. How many have a medium? Four. How many have a low? Eight. How many have a prognostic study, like you've shown? Four. And how many have no data at all? Eleven. I actually think that it's a violation of their statutory requirements to actually approve based on a surrogate that has no uh, ever documented correlation study out there. So anyway, that's something we're going to dig a little more on. Um, But I think what this suggests is when the FDA uses the surrogate, whether or not that surrogate gets you an accelerated approval or a regular approval. Surrogates are often very uncertain. So, Everlimus in breast cancer, uh, that's, that's here. That's in this bucket. It got a full approval in combination with eczema and it has a very poor prediction of PFS predicting OS in that setting. And then the way we use it now is in a way that wasn't even studied, which is often after Palbo and that kind of stuff, right? That's how people are giving it. But that wasn't the, inclu- that wasn't the way it was studied in, in Bolero. Okay, last topic. So, okay, what, what have we learned so far? We learned, we learned where the surrogate really came from. Okay, it came from operational definitions of Mayo Clinic researchers in the 1970s with a mattress and foam rubber and marbles and calipers, okay, before CAT scans. Those were the thresholds that we used to dichotomize something that's kind of continuous. We also saw from these two gentlemen measuring the same lesion on the scan that there can be differences in measurement agreement, and that was proven by Tanock. They're basically doing a Tannock experiment with just two people. And actually, imagine what would happen if, we di- if I didn't point out which lesion to do, if I just brought them up here and said, you pick which one. So, yeah, but I should bring like, different groups of people. First person, they have to pick what lesions and measure two different scans and see if it's progression or not, and then they turn their back to the audience, and the next group has to just say, the same lesion, let's see if we can dispute. You'll see there's error in both ways. Okay, so we talked about that. Then we talked about the surrogates have poor per- correlation with what really matters. Um, we talked about the FDA's use of surrogates, which is frequent. From this figure you can see, two thirds of drugs are approved based on surrogates. Period. You know, One third is based on overall survival quality of life. Most new drug approvals are surrogate-based approvals. Um, and those surrogates are very weak at the time of approval. And with post-marketing follow-up, they later rarely show survival benefits. Okay, but why do people like the surrogate? That's what we didn't talk about. What's the benefit? And the purported benefit is that you speed the time it takes a drug to come to market. You have a study time reduction. So this is work that Emerson did, which is a very complex analysis, where he basically got like all these drug approvals over time and he looked to see what predicts the speed at which trial results are given. And some of the thing, what are some of the things that you would think about? You'd think about like the rate at which you can enroll patients, your enrollment rate. If you increase enrollment rates per month, how many people you can put on a study per month, you will decrease the time it takes for a study to be done because you're getting people on the trial faster. Okay, so that's one thing he did find. Then the other thing he finds is line of therapy. If a drug is tested in the last line, breast cancer versus the front line, where do you think it's gonna take longer to see a PFS or OS? It's obviously faster in the last line because the event rate is higher, it's more lethal. So the line of therapy matters. Uh, And then he he also asked, I think in one of his models, whether or not the depth, like do drugs that generate more stronger responses, speed time. Because you can imagine if you have a really strong response, you have a bigger difference between the intervention and the control, you'll detect the difference faster. But actually, that didn't, that didn't persist in our models. The last thing is the choice of endpoint you're using. That might speed time. So PFS might be faster than OS and response rate might be faster than PFS, right? you might think, right? So Emerson built a multivariate model where he asked, how much time does the endpoint save when you account for the enrollment rate and the line of therapy? Does this make sense? He's saying some of it is saved by the enrollment rate, some of it is saved by line of therapy, adjusting for those two known factors. How much does the endpoint save? And what he found was that in a median time uh, to come to the market of 7.3 years of clinical testing, the surrogate endpoint was associated with an 11% savings or 8.3%. So in other words, if we lived in a universe where we would ask for overall survival, we would go from 7.3 years to about 8.2 years. We'd add about a year, 11 months. It would take 11 months longer to know about these drugs in aggregate. Um, and so that's the time savings. So I guess what I, what I want to point out is that it's not as much as people would think. And if you're in the third line of therapy, it's probably, it might not be much at all. Because as I told you, like if you did a third line trial and you have a response rate endpoint, they still want to watch to make sure that the duration of response, it doesn't come right back you know, they want to follow that for a while. So often these approvals say response rate, 12%, median duration of response, 16 months. So they've had to wait, you know, to know the median duration. They've had to wait a little bit longer. And so when you start to think about it in that way, Emerson finds that in the third line, there's no time savings from surrogate endpoints, which is where surrogate endpoints are used the most, ironically. So this is the article that somebody wrote, surrogate speed cancer drug approvals, but only by 11 months. Okay, Okay, but I think that it's even more complicated than this paper, because companies may may enter into a bargain. So if you make a new drug for HER2 cancer, you could run a clinical trial in relapsed breast cancer, or you could run a clinical trial in frontline breast cancer. It's your choice, right? Um, If you run a trial in relapsed breast cancer, how long will it take you to assess overall survival in a randomized controlled trial? Well, it's relapsed, HER2-positive breast cancer. We calculate in one study, it'll take you 12 months to see the OS benefit. If you measure in frontline breast cancer, it might take 15 months to assess PFS and 30 months to assess OS, for instance, you can imagine in the study with the same sort of potency of a drug. Okay, so I think people think, people act like, if you accept surrogate endpoints, that the trial that was gonna take 30 months is now gonna take 15 months, so you've sped things up. But what if the company doesn't make that decision? What if the company makes this decision? They were gonna do this trial, but because you accept surrogate endpoints, they make this decision, the green arrow. They say, why do I wanna go after this very small market share? This is the size of the market share, because we know patients keep dying a long way. Why do I wanna go for this very sized market share and take 12 months? Just three months more, I get a PFS approval on the front line, and my market share is huge, okay? And so the actual example where this really fits very well is TDM1 or trastuzumab was developed in the relapse setting and it had an OS benefit in 40 some months and pertuzumab was developed in the frontline setting and it had the PFS benefit in around the same amount of time. So their manufacturers making a calculation. They're bartering the speed they were supposed to be using for the, the surrogate was supposed to be used for speed. We gave you this golden ticket. You're supposed to use it for this purpose, but they traded it for market share in this hypothetical. I think they do that a lot. So I think like when you ask like what is the policy of accepting surrogates do, it's naive to think that all the trials just go from this to this. Perhaps some of the trials go from this to this. You know, what do, these are like unintended consequences just like anything else in you know, in any, in any policy setting. Okay, that's part one. In part two and part three we will talk about these other things. Why the trials fail us. Okay, internal validity has to do with whether or not the trial is reliable for drawing the conclusion within that study, but external validity is whether or not it's reliable to draw the conclusion to people outside the study. There's efficacy, which is how well do drugs work under ideal circumstances, and effectiveness, how well do drugs work among people who are reflective of real world populations. Why randomization? Gleevec didn't need a randomized trial to know it was successful, but why does naratinib need a randomized trial? What's the difference? You don't need a randomized trial to know that be, getting shot with a, a gun is harmful. It's been testing a randomized trial. You mm-hmm. know nobody needs that. But why do we need a randomized trial to know that cancer screening is beneficial, for instance? So what, what are the rules of randomization? Why, when do you need randomization? Why, and why can't you settle for just observational data? Crossover, when do you need crossover, when don't you? And what about drug dosing and dose reduction? That's the second lecture. And then the third one, if I looked at all people with cancer, who came in this year who need a treatment. How many are gonna get a genome therapy? How many are gonna get checkpoint inhibitors? How many are gonna get psychotoxic drugs? How effective are those drugs? Um, What happens to clinical trials over time, more than what I've shown you? Um, And then what is this efficacy effectiveness gap? How come the trials don't, don't translate to outcomes in the real world? And then what about thought experiment about drug development? Okay, so that's what we'll cover. That's all I got for you. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.